Uh, well, for the sake of time, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time sharing um, just some introductory stories, but just to uh, kind of do a little call and response. I need to know a little bit more about you so that I know a little bit better how the, I feel like the Holy Spirit's going to guide this time together. But if you're a current church planner or you think you're going to be planning a church, would you just stand up for me real quick? Current church planner, or you think, wow, I'm honored. Thank you very much. Um, you can go ahead and be seated. Then I'm going to assume that the rest of you that uh, remain seated are in churches that have a heart to um, support church planning or that you yourselves want to make a difference in an urban context. And so um, I, I, am, I am thrilled about that. Uh, I left a note sheet for you. It looks like a $20 bill um, that we're going to work through, a place for you to record some of your ideas. And I'm going to explain this a little bit more as we go along through our time together. But we chose this because I'm going to share a word with you, or, or two words with you, that um, I, I feel like has a huge impact on how we share Jesus in an urban context, and it's called relational currency. And we're going to talk about it in just a moment. But I would like for you to study this. There's a lot of detail in this that will help you remi- remind your, help you remember some of the things that we've shared. There's scripture verses hidden in the little numbers areas on their little uh, identification, as well as some contact info on the inside of how, if you have some questions after this, how you can stay in touch with our team in Baltimore. Uh, and also on the back, it's a great way for you to remember to pray for our cities. So you can leave that open. And the only ink pen that writes on this type of paper is a ballpoint pen. So I hope you have one of those. Um, if you were here in Atlanta last year, I shared this picture uh, at the North American Mission Board, like director of missions meeting thing that they had. I feel like this is where a lot of churches um, that are especially in the urban context get to and then they stop. Uh, and Rubik's Cube was a phenomenon when I was a child. There was like one in 10,000 people that actually could get more than one side done. Is there anyone in here that can solve in a Rubik's Cube? All right, yes, that's about right. Good. One or two of you in here can actually do it. And I love this analogy because I feel like in the church planning world, what ends up happening is, is we get into our area, into our city, and we start to work. And then one day the light comes on and we realize that we get one side complete. And so what do you do? You celebrate. You're like, wow, look at this. I've got one side done because most of you are like me. You're a one-talent individual. And so when you accomplish something, you celebrate it. And so you set it down. You show it to your friends. You show it to your family. But then you get up enough courage to try to get another side done. And then what do you realize? That you have to mess up the side that just took you a week to complete in order to begin to create another side. And so you make that first turn and then you stop like, wait a minute, what happens if I can't get it back? And so we, we end up putting it down, then we get enough courage, we try it again. And then we realize on so many different levels that the church that I feel like Jesus died to start so that you and I can engage it, especially in our density areas like Dahadi describes it, is these places of massive amounts of density where there's great amounts of diversity, not only ethnic diversity, but economic diversity, that when we get to a point is that we realize the only way we can take a step forward is to mess up what we've already started. And that's a tough place to be because you lose people then. Leaders are like, no, why don't we just keep it the way that it is? Why do we have to change things? Why do we have to do a language in two? Why do we have to do a service in multiple languages? 
Don't we like English is fine. I mean, why do we need to do it in Spanish or in Mandarin? And why do we introduce this other stuff? But the problem is, is Revelations 20 and 21 looks more like a completed Rubik's Cube than it does with a one-sided Rubik's Cube. And if we're living in God's kingdom now, our aspirations is to get there. And so what we're finding in our urban density areas is that a lot of guys will start out and will start out with a lot of fervor and excitement. But as soon as you get one thing accomplished, you end up stuck there. And you limit the capacity because we refuse to continue to grow and to change. So let me get start with a few things that I want to make sure we're, we're, we're in the same place regarding in regards to just some verbiage. When I refer to a partner church I'm re- or, or a partner, I'm referring to churches and organi- organizations or individuals who pray for, provide people, and provide resources. And yes, that does include some money to assist in a church plant. So when I say that, 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 that could mean a local business. It could be a nonprofit. It could be the North American Mission Board. It could be the First Baptist Woodstock. You know, Johnny Hunt already said today he's looking for more churches to be involved in. So I don't know why church planters didn't flock to the stage with their prospectus and say, hey, you said you're looking for more. You know, so here you go. But church partners are those that fall into that category. So when I say partner, that's what I'm referring to. When I say planter, what I'm saying is it's a pastor shepherd who is, who is sent out by a local church after they've been assessed and validated by a council of elders. I'm not, talk, I'm, not, I'm not looking for church planners today that are like, yes, I'm the only one in my life that sees that church planning is my calling. I mean, you really need to be affirmed by the people that know you best. The people that know you best are like, man, I don't know. I mean, this might not be the best thing for you. There's one of two things. Either you're called and nobody sees it and you're just a special anomaly and you just need to go and be obedient. Or your friends are lying to you and they're setting your family up for destruction. And so you need to, we need to look at statistics that are coming out uh, from our urban context as to how many marriages are not making it. Um, even the stories of more stories that I'm hearing today about marriages that are falling apart, infidelity in the pastorate. I mean, there are people that are coming to my church in Baltimore that hate pastors because we have a reputation that we've earned. I believe that Paul needs to say the same thing to us that he said to Timothy in the early church. It better, just go ahead and emasculate yourselves so that you don't get yourself in trouble. I mean, it was all about this idea of circumcision then, but I think that some of us, if we're going to get this, we need to understand there is great reputation of Jesus at stake. And I don't know how it is that we are getting away from accountability where we can fake it in front of one another, but in an urban context, you're dialing up the heat, temptations, the sin that's around you. And if you're not prepared to go into an urban context, with accountability around you, people that know that can ask the hard questions, the people that have permission to kick in your door and walk in without you inviting them. We need those types of relationships in our urban context. And as a planter, you need to have a group of people that have assessed you and your family and that have prepared a way for you to be able to move forward. I use this word catalyst. It's not the best word for this scenario, but it's a word that, I, uh, that we've chosen to use because it really does imp, imp, uh, emphasize this idea that we can bring change. But these are individuals or families um, that are called, basically assessed themselves and cared for through the process of relocating into a city for the purpose of intentionally living as a means to making a disciple or, or disciples. So these are people that aren't looking to join your staff. 
They're not people that want to be pastors. They're not people that are saying, look, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to do my seminary and I'm looking to eventually have a role in your team. These are people that work in the workplace. They say, I work for Verizon. I work for, um, you know, uh, I don't know, T. Rowe Price. And I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee right now, and I can move to New York. I can move to Baltimore. I can move to Boston, get a job in management, and, and, and come in and and, and, and live and breathe and do what I'm about ready to talk to you about. Churches that are planting churches need to send people with their planters and not just planters. We have got to get to a point where we're sending out teams of people, or we just have to get to a point where if you're a, a church pastor near a city like Atlanta, that you're constantly telling your people, move into the city, move into the city. There's one church that I, that I, that I have a relationship with that has 4,818 family units in it. That's not 4,818 people. That's 4,818 family units. I've asked them for 100 families to leave their church to move into the northeastern cities of our country. And they look at you like you're asking for their arm. I mean, 100 uh, you still will have 4,718 family units. I'm just looking for 100. They don't even have to be your top givers. They can just be 100 families. You know, but yet that's, I, I feel like if we're going to grasp the concept of urban church planning, that we have to create a conduit of getting people back into our cities. We need to, we got to go overcome the fear of it. We got to get past the idea of me having a five bedroom house with four bathrooms and let me move into a 700 square foot with one, you know? And, uh, and it's like, okay, how can, I, how can I do this? We go to third world countries and sleep on the roof. We can move into our cities. You know, we can, we can, we can do what it takes. There's a couple of other things I want to define for you. When I talk about evangelism, I'm not talking about those that are gifted in evangelism, those that are the anointed evangelists. There are some of you in this room that are frustrated with everybody else in this room because they don't tell people about Jesus enough. That's because you have a special calling on your life and you need to celebrate that calling. Don't get frustrated with the rest of us. You just need to go tell everybody that you see about Jesus because that's what God has anointed you to do. The rest of us, need to keep evangelism as a part of our daily living, but it fits into our discipleship structure. Discipleship, in my mindset, in the urban context, is married to evangelism in the urban context. In my opinion, most cities in the United States have had people or media declarations of the gospel. Now we must move people into a discipleship path. What I mean by that is, is what did the disciples about, of Jesus know about Jesus when he said, drop your nets and follow me? They had no idea that he was going to a cross. They had no idea that he was dying for the sins of the world. They had no idea that he was going to resurrect. They just saw a, a, a teacher, a respected teacher, say to them, follow me as a disciple, and they did. You need to, I need to, in the urban context, get people to follow me following Jesus so that they'll ultimately end up following Jesus. I'm going to talk about that in just a few more minutes. But there's this mentality that I just go tell somebody about Jesus versus me carrying somebody to Jesus. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. I just want to be clear. So this is what I mean about this idea of discipling somebody to Jesus. You're going to have a neighbor. You're going to have a coworker. You're going to move into an urban context. You're going to be on the stoop of your house, like a front porch, and get a chance to talk to somebody. They're going to become an acquaintance. You're first going to know them as postman 
or corner store owner or the guy that wears the tacky Orioles shirt every week on this on this it seems like he wears it every every day you're going to come up with a name for a person they're an acquaintance how are you investing your life around them so that acquaintance begins to trust you they move from trust to friendship friendship to follower of you not follower of Jesus they're following you and then they followed you to Jesus, and then they followed Jesus to becoming a disciple maker doing the same thing. So there's this trajectory of intentional living that I'm talking to you guys about that moves people that you interact with on a daily basis from acquaintances to disciple makers. And it takes time and energy for us to be able to do that. I'm also going to talk to you about mission teams. Mission teams are important in the urban context. But a couple of things that need to happen is a a mission team is a team sent to a church plant context not to accomplish their own goals. Can I get an amen from church planters? I just came back from Haiti. I asked the pastors in Haiti, what is the thing that you wish that churches in America would say to you about the mission teams that they're sending? They said to me unanimously, I wish they would ask us what it is we want them to do. They come in and they tell us what they want to do. They don't ask us what we need, what we're asking of our church to do and how they can support us. They come in and demand it. For those of you that look like me, white skin, you have to look in the mirror and ask God to help you. Do you struggle with white pride? Just flat out, do you think because of your privileged status in life that you are radically have it all figured out You know what to do politically. You know what to do religiously. You know how to raise a family. You know everything about everything because of who you are. And so when you come into a city, that's what people feel. I promise you, you don't know as much as you might be projecting that you know, and you'll learn it really quickly when you move into a city. And mission teams come with that mentality. We've grown a church to 10,000 in Alabama, so we're coming to Baltimore, Maryland to serve you so you can have a church of 10,000 in Maryland when there is totally two different contexts. Do you guys realize that in the greater Baltimore, D.C. area, there are more people in a 45-mile stretch that live there than the entire state of Alabama? I mean, you're talking about density, people from all over the world, different economic groups. There's, there's some incredible things, but they come to assist the planner accomplish their goals. Mission teams must help the planners build relational currency, and this is what relational currency is. Relational currency is the amount of trust you have in the heart of another person. You guys have to forgive me. I came back with a cold from Haiti, and I think I got it in the Miami airport. The... Um, I think we underestimate this. If you read the little um, description in the, in the guide for today, I talked about the quote from Howard Hendricks, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. I don't care how many different ways we recreate the same phrase. It's true. It's true. With the best story ever to be told, the best news anybody could ever have shared with them, the communicator is important. It doesn't matter how good the news is, but if they don't trust the source, they're not going to respond. We deal with this with our children all the time. When we first moved into Baltimore, we used to do these little mental parent drills with our kids to see how good of listeners they were. So if this is the sidewalk and this was a city street, we would have them standing at the edge of the sidewalk. And for no reason at all, I would just say, step back. And what did my kids do at first? They would step back. 
Because why? Their senses were alert. It was a new environment. And anytime dad said something, they listened. Now we live there a little longer. And I say, step back. And my kids say, why? But why is just long enough for a city bus to come by and knock them off the sidewalk? We don't trust right away. And it's the same thing that we end up finding in our urban settings is, is that we no longer have a voice that we say anything that people automatically listen and obey. They immediately come back with, so why should we trust you? What, what, you know, that, that might look like a bus to you, but it doesn't look like a bus to me. I mean, it, it's, you get into this deal where unless somebody trusts your voice and in, 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 uh, is willing to say, look, I believe you have my best interest at heart. We're going to have a really hard time telling people about Jesus in an urban context. And part of the reason for that is, I believe, is that most people in our urban centers in America, this doesn't necessarily mean our friends in Canada. Things are a little bit different there. But the majority of people in our urban context in America have heard a gospel presentation. We are now trying to get them to listen again and have a different outcome at the end of the conversation. So how do you share Jesus with somebody that has already said no? Or they said yes, prayed, and they never did anything with it, so therefore they don't feel like they ever had any moment with God. And so they're like, yeah, I prayed a long time ago, but nothing in my life changed. And then how do you share Jesus with somebody that says to you, oh, by the way, I don't trust the Bible? Because the only way that we've ever been trained to evangelize is to you start with this verse, you go to this verse, you go to this verse. When I was sitting at Life of Riley's Irish Pub when I first moved to Baltimore, I learned very quickly that quoting scripture to people was not going to get me very far. Because every time I'd quote a verse to them, they would say something back to me to deflate the validity of the verses that I was quoting to them. And then I very quickly realized that the only thing that they were looking for out of me was an authentic experience with Jesus. They wanted me to share with them the ways that I've experienced God in this world, and they wanted to hear about that. They, didn't, they learned to trust this after they learned to trust what God was doing in me. And then you can see why Paul told the church in Corinth in his second letter that the, that the words of God aren't written on tablets of stone. They're written on you. But we, we don't have a church that's been trained to be a living, written word of God. We only go around and we throw this at people. And a lot of people only think that the church knows to use this as a sword and not as a way that can bring life. And so that's, uh, that wasn't in my notes. I don't know why I went there. Um, but in Colossians chapter 4, um, in Colossians chapter 4, I want to lay a quick foundation for this. And while, while you're turning there, um, I just want to, I want you to say this about church planning. Because everything in this intentional living side of things in the urban context is very simple. And so this is what I want you to say back to me. It is not complicated. Say it one more time. It is not complicated. Say it a little bit more authority. It is not complicated. Um, Rick Warren, I know that some people love him, some people hate him. I am, I'm very thankful that he has allowed himself to be loved and hated so much. But the one thing that he has said that has stuck out in my mind that is so important that we still are failing to do today in our urban planting context is he says you need to barbecue a lot. We don't take time to eat with people. We don't take time for people. It's all about our programs. It's all about the things that we're doing. It's all about the things that, that, um, that happen on a Sunday. 
and we're not taking time for You're not going to build relational currency with people. There won't be a face on your $20 bill unless you take time to get to know people. And so in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 4, it starts out with the one thing that church is good at talking about but not good at doing unless you're a part of an, uh, what I, I love my, my Haitian brothers and sisters in, in Haiti because they learn to pray. Um, I wish I had time to tell you a story, but I don't. But if you want to see me afterwards, we'll have a hey powwow. But devote yourselves to prayer. Vance Pittman hit the nail on the head when he said, if this was a prayer meeting, there would be enough people to fill the front row. We don't pray. That is a sin. We need to confess it to one another, and we need to do something about it. Um, being watchful and thankful. We never take time to look out over what God is doing and thank him. We always continue to ask him for things. I love the psalmist. We, we enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts of praise. We come to God with the thanksgiving, and then we bring our prayers of petitions and requests to him. And then it goes on to say, pray for us, too, that God would open up a door for our message, that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, which Louis talked about last night, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And then listen to this. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. We had snowmageddon in Baltimore a couple winters ago. We got 80 inches of snow in Baltimore, and, that, and we usually get 8 inches of snow in Baltimore in a winter. I was shoveling snow on my sidewalk out in front of my house, and a guy climbed the snowbank on his side of the road, walked across the street, climbed the snowbank on my side of the road, walked over to me, and he says, you're a Christian, aren't you? I looked at the back of my shovel to see if there was a fish on it. I looked at my hat, like, did it say First Baptist Woodstock? You know what I mean? What, what, was, what, what was on me? And, and I just said to him, yes, I am. I said, how do you know that? He says, I've been watching you through your windows. <laughs> you know where my, my mind went? There are nights when I'm in bed and I want ice cream and I just jump out of bed. And I run to my refrigerator and I get ice cream without checking the windows, without making sure that I'm decently attired. And that changed from that point forward, by the way. But you and I do not live our lives aware of the fact that people are watching us all the time. People are watching you. And if you read John's first letter in 1 John, he is saying that God is invisible, but the way you and I love and treat one another makes him visible. That's a paraphrase. Even stronger than Eugene Peterson would paraphrase it. But that is, that's, that's the gist of it. But the church doesn't live aware that how we interact, how we display God on a daily basis has a huge impact on whether or not people believe that he is real. And they're watching us to see it. They're listening to, to the words we say and the actions that we're doing. And so I want us, as we step into this, to realize that God has got us in a place where he wants us to interact. I don't have time to read for you Luke 15, 1 through 7. But in the parable of the lost sheep, something jumped out to me um, a few years ago. You have this passionate discourse of Jesus going from lost coins to lost sheep to all these different things to emphasize the the importance of us as a church going after people. In the story of the lost sheep, something really struck me. This shepherd left the 99 to go after the one. But what does it say about the shepherd? It says the shepherd found the sheep, and when he found the sheep, he just told it it was lost, right? He just looked at the sheep like, you walked away. You're, you're, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he says, you need to come back with me, right? Is that, what, is that how the, the story plays out? What does it say the shepherd did? 
Say it confidently, white church. <laughs> Come on, talk to me. I just came back from Haiti. Everybody answers. He put him on his shoulders. How much does a sheep weigh? A hundred, the average male sheep weighs about 120 pounds. Have any of you been to Israel? Is the topography like Little House on the Prairie? Is it like me going from the city uprising sign to this blue sign? Like, let me carry it a little ways. Man, it's hot. No, I mean, you're talking about narrow roads, rocks, ravines, mountains, treacherous terrain. But this shepherd loved this sheep so much that he got down, picked it up, put it on his back, and carried it back to community. That's evangelism in the urban context. The majority of people that are lost in our city, that we meet in pubs, that we meet on the streets of our city, are lost, heavy sheep that you have to pick up, you have to put them on your back, and you carry them for months, months, months before they confess Jesus. And you're taking those months, building trust, building relational currency with them so that they can um, begin to place their faith and trust in Jesus. I believe that in our urban context, there's good dirt in the soil. There's good dirt. There's good soil in our cities where they can take root and grow. The only problem is, is that it's under 10 inches of spiritual concrete. The church is really good. We have come up with some great seed tools. We've got tools that you can go to Lifeway and purchase that will spread seed far and wide. But I don't see a lot of tools that prepare churches for the work that's involved to get to the dirt. That's hard work. Day after day after day, breaking up concrete that the enemy has placed over top of good good soil where seeds can take root. There is not a problem with the seed. The seed is good. But we have allowed in our urban density areas for the seed to fall on top of concrete because we've allowed a generation, a generation after generation to just lay concrete upon concrete. And how do we break that up? This is what intentional living does. It says, I am going to go into a city, into a section of a city, into a densely populated area, and I'm going to begin to remove concrete so that I can sow seeds and see it grow. This is the typical suburban model. You live in a neighborhood, whether it's Abraham or Sarah's, um, or Bo and Ruth, and you go to church. This model does not work in the urban context. It really doesn't work in the suburban context. The model that needs to work is, is that people go to Abe and Sarah's house, and then they go with you to church. That they trust you first before they trust the church. They go with you because they don't, tr- not because they trust the pastor that he's going to be a good word. They say, if you believe in him, I believe in him. And I'm following you, and so I'm going to go wherever you take me. And so in this ment- mentality is that you and I now have a struggle that I feel like has been a battle in the conventions where I've attended, the seminaries in and around our SBC influence in, in the denominational world between the proclamation and the demonstration of Jesus Christ. 
So many people are proclamation, proclamation. So many people are demonstration, demonstration. And, and it's a battle. It's a tension. I agree with Andy Stanley on this. There are some tensions that do not need to be solved. This is one of the tensions that I hope that we wrestle in for a very long time. Have I said enough? Have I done enough? But it, it, at the end of the day, I need you to say this. I need to be obedient. Say it. Because the only way you're going to sleep at night is if you know you've been obedient to God that day. The best sleep that you could ever have is to know that you did what God wanted you to do that 24-hour period, and now you can go rest. And there's nothing worse than you putting something on your schedule that God doesn't want on your schedule. And so what I've begun to figure out is in the urban context, there's this massive war between nonverbal communication and verbal communication. And so I began to look into um, some of the statistics on this. And the statistics vary based upon different ways of looking at it. And I even had one of our language people in our church that specializes in speech and, and tones and all this kind of talk with me about the scientific side of this. But most people agree that it falls in this, that 15% of our communication is nonverbal. I mean, excuse me, 15% is verbal. 85% of our communication is nonverbal. So when you walk up to somebody on the street, they already know what you're thinking about them before you ever open your mouth. When you sit next to somebody at church, they already know what you're feeling about them before you ever open your mouth. When you see somebody that is um, panhandling or you see somebody that, is, that looks a certain way, the skin color, the way they're dressed, they already know what you're already perceived about them before we ever open our mouth. And if we are going to learn to intentionally live in the urban setting, you and I have to place a mirror by our front door and look at it before we walk out and say, what am I communicating before I ever open my mouth? Even like some of you right now in this, in this room, you have your I'm sitting and listening face on. Some of you, it looks like you have a hemorrhoid. Others of you, that might be true, but... Um, Others of you are looking at me like, yes, this is, I finally found somebody I'm connecting with. This is something I've been looking for. And others of you are like, I mean, you just have this face like stone. But that's how we communicate. And if we're looking for lost sheep in our urban context, we have got to understand that we have to teach people how to non-verbally communicate the best story ever told. Good news is still good news today, and it needs to be good news in our words as well as it needs to be good news in our nonverbal communication. And so this idea of intentional living, let me break it down for you. When we moved to Baltimore, this is the city of Baltimore, we were like, wow, 600,000 people live in the yellow. So we were like, okay, four of us, yellow. Thank the Lord God led us to a 63-year-old African-American gentleman that, that, that took interest in our family, prayed over us, came like an elder for me, and really helped hear the story of our church, walked around, drove around, ate meals with us, helped us find a, a part of the city where he knew that as a white young pastor that I could have an influence in both the white and black and Asian and Latino community that make up Baltimore and the ec economic diversity areas. Like, you know what, you need to live in this little community called Butcher's Hill because you'll have neighbors that are rich, neighbors that are poor, neighbors that are white, neighbors that are Asian, highly educated, no education. I mean, it's all 
right here. This is one of the best places for you if you're going to start. So we moved into that. And so what we decided to do was divide our city up into seven chewable chunks to eat the elephant at one time. So we didn't say we're not just going to discount the rest of the city. We were just like, we just need to focus in one spot right now. And and we're going to focus where we live. It's really hard to, to, to start um, or to join the movement of God in a community if you aren't in a situation where you can build relational currency with them. Most of the churches in Baltimore that have pastors that drive into the city are not doing well. The churches that are showing life in a community and trust are those pastors that are living with their people. And so... Um, Around the blue area is where we really got our start, and God gave us favor there, and then God allowed us to start a second campus in the red area, and so I'm going to explain a little bit of what that looks like. Let me zone in here. What we ended up doing was is we started tracking where people were living, and so rather than saying we're reaching Baltimore, we're like, how do we intentionally live where our people are, where they're living, where they're working, where they're playing, where they're learning and begin to help them. So we started to look on a map where we could have people that, that were being a display of God's greatness. And the yellow little circle is where my family lives. And, and so we began to just say, what does it look like for us to love on the people in and around us? And so we decided to come up with a strategy that would help people have the time to get to know their neighbors. Too many churches have too busy of a schedule, and the church calendar is the biggest enemy to evangelism. And so um, I used to live in this little light blue house on the corner of North Washington and East Fairmont. The, little, the, the dark blue um, square in the, on East Fairmont is a, a little Irish pub called the Life of Riley's. When we outgrew our house and needed a place to worship, we had been eating in the little um, restaurant area, the pub, as a family getting to know our neighbors. And one day the owner overheard me talking to somebody about, do we know of a place that was free or cheap where 30 or 40 people could meet? And he just came up to me and he says, hey, I got a party room upstairs. You can have your church services there and it's free. And so we started having... um, our church in the pub, and I had denominational leaders say, that's great, but don't put it on your website. That's right. I don't know why I just said that. Um, I probably shouldn't have. But, um, But we started meeting there, and we just started dropping invitations in people's doors of saying, would you come over for coffee or tea or dessert? We kept it short. Those of you Southern hospitality people, don't bring it into the city with you. Two reasons why. Number one, they might think you're weird and they need an early exit. Or number two, you might think they're weird and they need an early exit. So make a commitment not to the seven-course Southern family meal to start with. Bring them in for coffee, dessert, get to know them, and then find a time to invite them back. And get to know people. Build trust with them. And sitting in front of Life of Riley's, there are people that I got to know for months that cursed me out for months. I'm this blanken pastor. This, this, I mean, just, they use words and sentences I didn't think were possible. And I'm sitting at a table one time before our church services, and they were cursing me down. And this lady was going off. I don't think she took a breath for five minutes. She finally stopped and said, what do you have to say about that? And my response to her was, I think there's still some more things you want to share. And I said, so I would like for you to feel like you could tell me everything. And one of her friends slapped the table, stood up, and said, that's the best answer you could have given. Don't you say a word. I get back. I got to (laughs) pay. 
and in an intentional living mentality, you have to become comfortable with interacting with sinners. You have to. It can't be awkward for you. It can't be. You have to be wise. Don't you go as a single male to, uh, to the pub on single female free drink night. That's stupid. Okay? But if you're involved in trivia, take a friend. If, you, if, it's, a, if it's opportunity, take your wife. Go. Do it together. Create opportunity for do it together. Don't make your wife's job everything else in the church you don't have time for. She needs to be with you. You know, and so you create opportunities for that, but you have to learn to intentionally live. Get to know your neighbors. Track it. I left the middle section of your note page so that you right now could be forced to draw out where you live. Could you draw the streets, draw the houses, and then could you label the names of the people that live around you? How many names of houses could you say, this is where the Jones live, this is where the Smiths live, this is where, and you could go. If you draw it out, and you can't name anybody that in, on your street, but you've been going to your church for 10 years, shame on us. It's not about the relationships you make in the building that you attend. We are the church wherever we are, and until we act like the church wherever we are, we are going to lose ground in the kingdom fight. And so intentionally living is putting us there. And so some of you live in tall buildings, adopt your floor. Some of you work in cubicle settings, and you're there 18 hours a day. You gotta, where are you? Where do you need to grow? Where, do you, where are you being planted? Who do I need to interact with? I need to interact with people. I don't just go to work to provide for my family. I'm going as a missionary of the good news of Jesus Christ. I would say that we need to start less churches and we need to send more people to work. More people into our neighborhoods. That's the best revitalization plan ever is for people to go to work with Jesus and come home with Jesus. And so one of the things that, um, that I'm going to say in wrapping this up, and I, I hopefully you can be able to see this um, clearly, on the left side of the screen, it starts with one person, five years, ten people. I honestly feel that Jesus knew what he was talking about. Can I get an amen? All right, that wasn't very good. Jesus knows what he's talking about. Yeah, that's right. So Jesus said to go and make disciples. We talk about it. We're really good about getting people into Bible studies, but we're not good at making disciples. Partly because you don't feel like you're worthy of anybody emulating you. But Paul said very passionately, he didn't say follow Jesus. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. All right, I want you guys to get this. You can't just say, hey, look, Jesus is over there. Don't, go, don't do that thing. Do as I say, not as I do. I mean, we've really got to do this thing. And if we get serious about this, look at this. If you invest in 10 people for five years, it means you don't talk to anybody else. 10 people, five years. I am investing in you. We're going to make the image of Christ. I'm going to pull it out. By the end of that five years, you are now following Christ with as much passion and his energy as anybody that you would want. And they adopt 10 people over five years. And every five years, the the people do what they've been taught. And how many people have you invested in? 10. 10. In less than 30 years. 
we will have discipled over two and a half million people. There are 2.6 million people in the greater Baltimore area. In my lifetime, we can see a revival break out, not because some gifted pastor has come in and can draw a crowd and can preach, but is when a group of people say, I'm going to make a disciple that makes a disciple that makes a disciple that makes a disciple. And that's how we live. It becomes a part of your living. If you can't carve in scheduled time in your life to make a disciple, you're too busy. You're doing something that God doesn't want you to do, and you need to cut it out. And it might be eight hours of TV, and if you're under the age of 30, it might be video games. But we have got to figure out a way to invest in people. It takes time. So as a church staff, this is what I'll do is kind of like an ending piece for this time. And then if we have time, we'll do some questions. I don't know about the way this is supposed to end. For now, my wife and I end a lot of our sentences with the word for now. It worked for Jesus. It's going to work for us. Like for now, it's best that the Holy Spirit is with you. All right. And so I would rather Jesus be able to walk into my church and say something. I think it would help me out a lot. But he says, you know what? It's better that the Spirit is with us right now. So I got to trust that. And so we say to our church staff and our church people, this is what we feel comfortable with for now. Because God's spirit might blow, like Louis said last night, we need to go in a different direction. So I don't want us to lay anchor or put a motor on our boat and keep going in a direction God doesn't want us to go. But for now, this is what we do. We do an A and a B week on our church staff. A week, my wife and I invest in all of our staff, their spouses, and their kids. They come into our house. We cook food for them. We serve them at our table. I pay the expense of that. It's not a church budget. This is my family investing in them. Now, I do cheat. I do take honorariums for moments like this and spread it out so that it helps. But it's in my personal budget. I don't turn in these receipts. I feed my staff spiritually with prayer and invest in them. And I try to use those weeks to meet with them one-on-one. Then B weeks, I went to all the cliques in our church. And I pulled the leader out. And I invited him to my house for dinner. And then they realized they were sitting down at the table with every other clique leader in our church. And for almost eight months, every other week, they were at our table. And my wife and I invested in them just the same way we're investing in our staff. We talked almost about the same exact stuff, and we continued to invest in them. And it was as simple as having an A week and a B week and repeat A week, B week, and we just said yes to these certain people. And the Lord is allowing there to be a new level of leadership and growth in our communities. And we are encouraging our people to grow where they're planted in our city. Live intentionally for the kingdom of God. I didn't allude to these stars earlier on this map. In the blue area, we have a congregation of people right now that meets regularly a little over 200, 250, sometimes three. just depends on whether or not the Ravens are in town or there's a race or something like that. But um, in the red area, about 100 folks. But each star on this map represents a group of people coming to our church larger than our core group in September of 2008. So... We are trying to teach them to live intentionally where they are because if in four years we can have two locations ministering to over three to 400 people, then what could God do at each one of those stars in the next four years if what we do is learn to grow where we're planted? You don't attend church. You are the church. 
And we've got to figure out a way of discipling our people to do that very thing. And so practically, simplify. We have to simplify our lives. I'm at a, pay, a point in time in my life right now where I've said yes to too many things. And I'm having to start saying no to some things so I can get back to a healthy balance because I want to be the best neighbor on my block. I don't want to be the best pastor in Baltimore. I want to set example of what it would be like to be a neighbor to the people in Baltimore that live around me. And may that be said about you. May that be said about your people. Because if we develop a reputation in our city as people that love God, love each other, and love our neighbors, we will see a revolution in our urban settings that goes beyond anybody's wildest imagination. Now, in the urban context, you face a lot of, a lot of challenges. New York City is unique. They have several different boroughs with different flavors and personalities and all this kind of stuff. But your urban context, your places of density are going to cost you a lot emotionally, physically, and financially, whatever it is, you're going to need to understand that. But it is worth every moment. But don't go unless you know you're being obedient. Uh, let me just end there. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this chance to share with these people. Father, from a practical standpoint, um, I think that we're, we just need to be freed up to do some simple things. Father, we need to walk obediently to what you ask of us. And I'd have to say, Father, many days I don't hear your voice because I'm not taking time to listen. And so, Father, I pray that we would love you with all of our heart, our mind, soul, and strength, and that we would love our neighbors that same way. Realizing that that is a key to city revitalization, community revitalization. And Father, matter of fact, church revitalization. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a display of your greatness wherever we're planted. And that we would say no to church busyness so that we can say yes to a neighbor. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing I'll just share with you um, that's free information here at the very end. We're, um, we're four and a half years into this church plant, which I don't, um, I agree with Louie and Ed and all those guys that talk about planting and starting churches. We use a gestation cycle to describe our church from consummation to birth to infancy and childhood and all that. I think it flows a lot better. But um, I'll just tell you guys this. In four years, our church has only spent $8,000 on advertising. And that was in the first year, and we vowed we'd never do it again. Um, in the urban context, yard signs don't work. City bus ads don't work. Radio ads really don't work. Um, it, it, it really does come down to you becoming a, a currency that people trust so that at some point in time you can cash in your cash on them and say, look, I'm trustworthy let me share with you some truth of what God's doing in my life. And so let me encourage you, put a picture on this bill, go home, pray over that person and say, God, would you increase my currency with this person so that I can carry them back to community. And may God's grace and peace be with you.